Welcome to the New England Take on WKXL 1450 AM, 103.9 FM, and nhtalkradio.com. I'm your host, AJ Kierstead. New England Take broadcast weekly at 6 p.m. on Friday, so be sure to check us out. We also podcast all the episodes if you go to thenewenglandtake.com. We've got a feed there. Uh, following us on Facebook is really suggested. If you go to, if you search for New England Take, so facebook.com slash New England Take, we're posting videos of all our episodes. They're doing great, so I really suggest you check it out. And we're actually in the middle of figuring out a uh, nicer video production uh, setup for it, too, over at the WKXL studio. So definitely follow us there to see those developments. I'm excited this week to be joined by Matt Robeson, who is the one of the hosts of Beyond Politics. He co-hosts it with former Congressman Paul Hodes. And I want to dive into a whole bunch of things with Matt. We got him here for the next 45 minutes. So I want to pick his uh, poorly informed Democratic brain. Uh, <laughs> so, Matt, welcome pick to the yourself. show. Well, thanks very much for having me. So I mean, what's your background here? I'm looking at your LinkedIn. You've got a, a very solid career working as a staffer and, uh, for campaigns, for people in office. I mean, what led you to go down this career path? I studied economics in college a longer time ago than I, I'd happened to admit. And uh, I was always interested in politics and political science. But after college, I, I, I got into doing economic analysis. It was pretty dry. It was pretty dull. And I decided, you know, I do not care that much about this per se. It just didn't matter to me if company A's profit margin was a lot higher than company B's profit margin. And uh, I ended up going to grad school uh, at the Kennedy School of Government. And that, that's what really kind of sent me down the road of being interested in kind of where the decisions are made and where things are at. You know, along the way, I had worked at a think tank and uh, actually they only really had one idea. So it was more of a thought tank. And what we were always struggling to do was to get people in decision-making positions to pay attention to us. And so we would be trying to get young 22, 23-year-old staffers on Capitol Hill to just pay attention to our reports. And it suddenly dawned on me, you know, what if I was on the other end of this? What if I was in more of a decision-making position? You know, not, not for myself. I, I, I never wanted to seek office. But what if I was helping to inform the people who were making the decisions in our government that's what I wanted to do. So uh, grad school kind of sent me down that road and uh, I gone on it and spent about a decade on the Hill. I, I've always been fascinated. I, I discovered a few years back, uh, like the Freakonomics podcast, and it, which is basically, it's a really great entry level into figuring out basically how economics works because the host isn't an economist. He, he's a journalist. So he comes at it from an outside perspective, which is very helpful. So I definitely suggest people check out that, that show. It's been around for a long time. Um, but economics really plays into how people should be making decisions when it comes to politics, in my opinion. Uh, economics really t tells you how people are going to react to different things. And I mean, how have you felt like that background of yours has impacted your ability to inform those in power ultimately? Back in college, I was considering becoming a political science major. And uh, someone I didn't even know very well said to me, Matt, you idiot. Don't study political science, study economics, because everything you want to learn in political science, you'll learn better in economics. And it was true. Now, I wish at the time the, the, the field was just going through the revolution 
that has been brought about by Daniel Kahneman and Amos Tversky. I don't know if you've read the Michael Lewis about them, the Undoing Project. Um, you know, the, it, there's been a whole revolution in economics and the way we think around behavioral economics, really bringing in the psychological component, which ultimately is really what politics is about, right? It's, it's about how people think and react and organize themselves in groups. That's ultimately the same thing that economics is about. It's the, it's the study of how people make decisions under scarcity. And what the behavioral economists have brought into the field is a realism. You know, all of the kind of it's all kind of theoretical. We're in ideal markets and all, all that stuff that economics was about, and I think continues to be about, has really changed over the last quarter century. So I wish I had more of that perspective, but I still think that the, the, the training, the grounding, you're right. It is ultimately about the same set of questions. My, my random friend in college was right. It's about how do people make decisions? How do we collectively as a society make decisions when there isn't an infinite supply of things, when we have to make grown-up choices. That's ultimately how you have to make decisions about bills on Capitol Hill or campaigns, or if you're in business, how you allocate your, your precious resources to make your business thrive. So I found it to be an incredibly helpful grounding for all kinds of things that I've done in my career, but yes, most especially in politics and in government. And it's important for buy-in, an issue that... Uh, it, which has been a disaster, especially the last 10 years with with pol politicians is figuring out how to get that buy in from people, mainly due to the partisanship. People are ignoring what may be what's best for them because their political party is pushing them in another direction or has some ideology, whether it's uh, far nationalism or foreign socialism that ultimately it is really tough to make work in the American system of politics. Thank God. Yeah, it's true. I mean, it used to be much more the case that you decided first how you felt about things. And on the basis of that, you decided what party you were in. It used to be 50 years ago that you had a ton of liberal Republicans. That, that was actually a thing, like a Nelson Rockefeller style Republican, a Charlie Bass style Republican, relatively what we would call today liberal. Don't forget that it was Richard Nixon who created the EPA, right? I mean, the, the, the politics of the Republican Party, the politics of the Democratic Party used to be very, very different. Nowadays, everything's been turned on its head. Your party defines how you feel about things. Look no further than what's happened over the last five years to Republicans under the leadership of Donald Trump. What is the Republican position on trade? It ain't what it was five years ago. And that's because, you know, you, you respond to the leader says it's X and now it's X. And Democrats are not immune from that kind of thinking as well. A absolutely not. But I, I do think, and, you know, I do another show on WKXL called Great Ideas that I think really would appeal if, if, if people associate themselves with what you were just saying, then they should really check out the great ideas show, which is on, on Thursdays. Because what I do is I interview experts from across the ideological spectrum. And I ask them what their innovative ideas for, for policy and government are. And I try and do it totally agnostic to where they're coming from on the political spectrum. So just last week, we had a guy, he was 
he he wrote the budget plan for Mitt Romney's presidential campaign in 2012, right? Like he is a very serious operative in Republican politics. He's at a highly conservative think tank. His whole point was, let's stop making all this policy at the federal level. Let's devolve a lot more power to the states. Well, this is the kind of thing that liberals, you know, kind of throw up at when, when they hear. But his point, and it's worth listening to if you're a Democrat, is, you know, we could really lower the temperature in Washington. It, 80% of counties in America are landslide counties, meaning they vote by 20 points or more for either Democrats or Republicans in presidential elections. So they're pretty homogenous. They're pretty ideologically the same. But once we get to Washington, everyone is at loggerheads and we're stuck. We're in a quagmire on all kinds of policy issues. And if we are willing to allow a little bit more flexibility, a little bit more diversity, maybe we'd fight about fewer things. And maybe progressives who want more progressive policy would get more of what they want in more of America. Uh, it's just an interesting idea to, to think about. Yeah, I mean, what's with the polarization that's been going on, which is just, it's cliche at this point to talk to bring up on a on a radio show, but I'm going to anyways, because it's my radio show. Um, it really to me, as I'm someone who's very constitutional, I, I view the Constitution as being super important to how our country works. There are people on the far left that want to throw it out and start over. And there are people on the far right that just want to completely ignore it and say, no, we want the, this whatever crazy brand of nationalism or um, I mean, ethnic <laughs> lack of ethnic diversity that they may want. Also, I, I view that as the key thing because it makes everything work. And to me, it almost feels like there's two parties in each of the two major parties going on where the, the Democrats have the they still have a lot of the old uh, liberals in, in their party. And then 50 percent of it right now are being eaten up by the progressives. They have a totally different agenda. I mean, how how do you view that? Look, at the Democratic Party at this point. I don't think you're wrong. There was a very interesting report, got a lot of coverage about two years ago. It's called the Hidden Tribes Project. They studied a panel of 8,000 respondents to a very detailed survey of political and social opinions. What they found is that there are extremes on each end of the spectrum. They represent about seven or 8% respectively on each end. So in total about 15% of the American electorate. They're far left, far right. They're very different than the other 85% of us. Yeah. The, 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 that 15%, you know, like the 7% on the left, you were asking about progressives in the Democratic Party. Well, you know, what do you find about them? They're a lot louder. They're a lot woker. And they're a lot more on Twitter. So what does that Yeah, do? they're a lot better at social media. And that's <laughs> they're hugely influential over the last, ever since Obama. And, and is that an accomplishment? I have to ask, if you're good at oh. social media, do, are you putting that on your resume? I'm not so sure. But yeah, you're right. So they're overrepresented in our, in our perception of how much of the Democratic Party they make up. But don't forget that 52% of Democrats self-identify as either moderate or conservative. And the 48% who identify as liberal, again, it's, it's only this segment on the far end that's truly loud and that has views that really veer off away from, from that mainstream. So I, I kind of agree with you that it's an issue. It, it is a little bit of an issue for both parties but they're not quite mirror images of one another. It's not, it's not the same issue on each side. 
you know, we'll dive deeper into the the, the uh, Republican side in a minute, but um, it, it seems like there's been this empathy battle when it comes to the left where, and that's a big thing that AOC has cashed in on. It's the reason why Obama, got, I mean, not Obama, Biden got in over Trump is the empathy vote. I mean, do you, I don't necessarily think that's the best way to approach politics and talking about your economics background a little bit. Empathy isn't necessarily what's going to lead to the best solution. I mean, what's your take on that? One of the things that interested me in economics from the get-go was what you find on the first page of any econ 101 textbook. I've got mine on the bookshelf that you can see behind me for video viewers. What you find is that the study of economics is mostly about efficiency, about how markets help societies to efficiently allocate resources. You've only got so much, right? And so what the free market does and does fairly well in most circumstances is help people make collective decisions by setting prices that send a signal to one another that say, this is how valuable this is. And so we let the market make those decisions about we want more of this, less of this. The, the classic economics example, I don't know why this is the trade-off, but you'll find this in most textbooks. It's guns versus butter. Why are those the two products, the only two <laughs> products in the world? I can't tell you that, but it's always guns versus butter on you know, the X and Y axis. What you'll find on page one of that Econ 101 textbook, though, is that everything isn't about efficiency, that there are questions of equity in society. That is the realm of government, is determining what the society's values are. And this is a decision with real world consequences. What you find consistently if you study history is that when inequality reaches a certain level, think French Revolution here, people, you, you create tremendous amounts of social unrest. And so this isn't just kind of a progressive class warfare driven question. There are very real consequences for our society of government making poor decisions. So I, I do think, yes, absolutely, it's unquestionably true that Joe Biden shows a lot more empathy for human beings than Donald Trump ever did. Kudos to him. And I expect that he will receive a heavenly reward for that. But he's also getting an earthbound reward. Yes, people respond politically to that. Absolutely. But there's also a very real economic component to this, that it matters in our society whether the top 1%, which by the way, were the, the folks who got 82% of the benefits of the 2017 Republican tax cuts, if you're misallocating so many of society's resources to the very, very top, there are very real world consequences for your country, for your economy, and for your society. And I think being able to communicate that also is a real political thing for Joe Biden. You're listening to New England Taken, WKXL, 1450 AM, 103.9 FM, and nhtalkradio.com. I'm your host, AJ Kierset. I'm here with Matt Robeson, who is one of the hosts of Beyond Politics and busy with 15 million other things, I'm assuming. So can you give a quick plug uh, for Beyond Politics before we go into break? Beyond Politics is on WKXL every day. It's available 
wherever you get your podcasts. We are definitely excited to get new subscribers. You can check out everything that we've got going at beyondpoliticspodcast.com. And I'd especially plug for our New Hampshire listeners, the Capital Close-Up podcast and show that former Congressman Hodes hosts every week. Uh, that's a terrific show focused specifically on New Hampshire. And I mentioned earlier, the Great Ideas podcast, which features experts talking about innovative, refreshing new ideas from across the ideological spectrum. You're listening to New England Take. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the New England Take and WKXL, 1450 AM, 13.9 FM and nhtalkradio.com. I'm your host, AJ Kierstead. Get the back episodes of the show and check out the videos from the program at thenewenglandtake.com. You can listen to the show weekly on Fridays at 6 p.m. as well as rebroadcast it a couple times through the week. You can check out those uh, those broadcast times at nhtalkradio.com. Joined today by Matt Robeson of Beyond Politics Podcast here on WKXL, and we're Talking politics, uh, it, it, it's really it's really fascinating getting your take on uh, the Democratic Party. I want you to now talk a little bit about your opposition personally when it comes to the political side of the spectrum. You and Paul make no bones about it. You're, you're a Democrat. Um, and you obviously, just like anyone else, I think is an over is ignored by the mainstream media is people have ideas on both sides of the aisle that that match with what they believe in. But for the sake of the conversation, when it comes to the parties and the disaster that they are at the moment, um, we, we talked about in the last segment about the progressives versus the mainstream liberals and the infighting in the Democratic Party on the Republicans. They're having equally as much of a populist problem with the forever Trumpers. And they got the libertarians with their thing with Justin Amash left um, left Congress. And he's likely going to run for president. He's going to pull a lot of libertarians out of the Republican Party, likely me with him, with them. Um, and then you got the mainstream Republicans with like your Ted Cruz's and such. I mean, what's kind of your your big picture look at the, the Republicans at this point? I'm one of those Democrats who kind of pines for a Republican party that once was. And look, there are Democrats who say, Matt, you're wrong. You're wrong. That party exists only in your mind. But I will tell you for an absolute fact that when I worked on Capitol Hill, starting about 20 years ago, everything that I was able to accomplish as a staffer, as an operative, I accomplished with Republican staffers, with Republican operatives, when we worked together behind the scenes. And that used to happen a heck of a lot more often. I was able, working for Paul Hodge when he was in Congress, working for Congressman Mike Michaud of Maine, I was able to help advance a, an economic development commission for the Northeast, for the forgotten left behind counties of the ice belt across four states from New York to Maine. And believe me, I mean, folks in Cause County know what I'm talking about here. These are areas of the country that desperately need help. They don't have jobs, they don't have infrastructure, people are leaving, it's what you call out migration. And we were able to create a commission that has leveraged $40 million of federal investment to create thousands of jobs and to bring in infrastructure and to create uh, new community facilities. And that's something I'm awfully proud of. It never ever would have gotten done without Republicans working side by side with us. I think we get not only more done as a country, we, <laughs> we have better ideas when we have a counterweight on the other side. 
I don't think either party has a, 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 the cornered market on good ideas. And I think both parties, when left to their own devices, will have the potential to go off the rails. You need that counterweight to keep you balanced, to sharpen what you're offering to the American people. So yeah, maybe I'm looking at things through rose-colored glasses, but um, I, I miss that aspect. I think that that aspect of the Republican Party is very real. And I do think it still exists. But as you say, it has gotten overtaken by the Trump wing of the party. Let's not forget that 137 members of the U.S. House voted to overturn the results of the election. The crown jewel of our democracy is our elections and our constitution, as you said before. And they thumb their nose at it in fealty to Donald Trump out of a weird cult to one strange dude. It doesn't make a lot of sense. And this came hours after they were cowering under their desks when a group of violent insurrectionists showed up intent on overturning the election and murdering some of them. So that is a problem. And I don't think we get anywhere by sweeping it under the rug. I don't think we get anywhere by ignoring it. I think it's something we have to take on head on. And I say everything that I said earlier about the respect that I have for what the Republican Party used to be and I hope can be again, because I want people to, to realize that's where I'm coming from on this. I'm not looking to destroy the Republican Party, but I for sure want to get rid of this element of violent insurrectionists who have this this bizarre fascination with Donald Trump. Yeah, I think the populism on both sides is cancerous to their respective parties and makes it impossible for anything to work, anything to get done. And a lot of it is spread out from the cable news push in the 90s. It's spread out even further and deeper with social media. Uh, it's like I I was a, in college. I graduated in 2010 and I was, so I was a student journalist during the 2008 election when Twitter, that was the first time Twitter was around for an election. And it was fascinating to see the horribleness and awesomeness all come out at the same time from it. But it, as things get further and more, everyone's on Facebook now, it, it, it really makes it even harder to get done, especially when the election cycles every two years, the party is basically put at odds with itself to figure out what little faction is going to take over. And it's not supposed to be little factions. It's supposed to be two big parties that work together, but that's not happening. And we need the two parties, to the two big parties to work together for just how the Constitution works for anything to get out of Congress. We've been relying on the executive branch to get everything done since back in the 90s. It's been escalating since then. That's a very astute point. Nowadays, 95% of the policymaking that's coming out of Washington is coming out of the executive agencies. There are 2 million Americans, civilians, not even counting the military, who work for the executive branch agencies. And these are the folks that are making policy. Now, I'm not against that. I, I, am, I am just fine with professionals, with expertise, making hands-on decisions about how we allocate our resources and how we run our programs. But what should scare any conservative and frankly, any liberal worth their salt is the fact that I can't find a reliable estimate anywhere of how many federal programs there are. Do you have an idea? There are it's estimates. Terrifying. Terrifying. Maybe, maybe 1,400, depending on how you count, 
different federal programs, how many of them overlap? How many of them do we know exactly what they're doing? And does the right hand know what the left hand is doing? No, of course not, because they don't even, we don't even know how many hands we have. So it is in general fine by me. I don't, I don't think of government professionals as, you know, it's dismissive to call them bureaucrats. I, 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 I believe in the expertise. I've worked with a lot of these folks and a lot of them are really awesome at their jobs. They do incredibly important things. The hollowing out of those agencies, I, I've already called out Michael Lewis books. I'm going to call out another one here, The Fifth Risk, which was an amazing in-depth study of just what a bunch of clowns and yokels and grifters on the make that Donald Trump brought into the executive branch agencies. No American should want that. No American should want that. These people work for us. We're the taxpayers. They're brought in to do a job for us. You don't, you don't want a bunch of political hacks or a bunch of people trying to advance their own personal business agendas in these agencies. So that, that was an entire disaster. I'm not against having great professionals in these places, but you are right. You, you made a, a really good point there that because we've had so much gridlock in Congress, which is where laws and rules and policy is supposed to be made, all of that power has gotten pushed over to the executive branch agencies. I don't think that's what the constitution intended. I don't think that's what most Americans want. No, it it kills me. It it kills me. I mean, we're supposed to be, I mean, there's federalism, I think is what makes our country work with 300 almost 330 million people in this country. There's too many people to rely on one little area in the country over on the East coast to take care of everyone across all these states that have very different sets of ethics from state to state. You can't expect the people in Texas to agree with the people in New York, let alone the people in New York city, which is more majority of that state's population. It's, I think you really need that federalism. I mean, that's kind of where I'm, I'm not sure if I agree necessarily agree with you that the experts are necessarily the, the right solution. I think, Trump had an, a good idea when it comes to bringing in uh, more experts from the from the corporate realm, but it does have a really inherent risk. And I think you need a balance. And that's kind of the advantage where some of the executive offices rely on. Uh, some of them are made to be more than just the current term of office. I mean, is that is that something that should be considered more is we need people that are uh, I mean, that's kind of the advantage with the the Supreme Court is they're there for the duration until they're impeached or age out. I mean, do we need more of that when it comes to government agencies? I have no problem. I'm, I'm a little different than most people in my party on this. I have no problem with programs and agencies having from time to time to come before Congress and re-justify their existence. That strikes me as healthy. And at the same time, I have no problem if Washington is going to do a job because it's inherently a federal job with a broad public good, no problem with professionals who know what the heck they're doing, doing that job. So there are areas, and by the way, you've got to check out the the Great Ideas episode on devolution that is in the Great Ideas podcast feed. It is talking your language. So what this expert, Brian Riedel, is saying is take an area like K-12 education, take an area like healthcare. Healthcare is the example that resonates most with him. He says, look, he, he has a career track that 
kind of parallels mine. You know, he, he worked in Congress. He worked in the Senate. I was more of a House guy. And, uh, you know, he's been in Washington for 20 years. I, I started about 20 years ago when he's like, look, we've been fighting about healthcare policy for 20 years. Now we passed the ACA. Do you know how many times House Republicans, when they had the majority in the House after Obamacare was passed, after it was law, after 20 million Americans were getting their health care through Obamacare, do you know how many times they passed the same bill to repeal it? just as a, a communications exercise, 47 times they repassed the same bill. Why? Because it was messaging. Because, And by the way, did they have a plan behind it? Something to replace it with? No, it was just because they wanted to have the same fight over and over and over again. Brian's point on the Great Ideas Show is maybe this is an area where we should let states go more of their own way. Pass minimum standards. Let's have an America. Let's have a floor on what we think is okay in America when it comes to healthcare coverage. We can all get behind that. But then after that, why should the people of Texas worry that Bernie Sanders, who they didn't elect, is going to oversee the kind of healthcare system they have? Why should the people of Vermont worry that Ted Cruz is going to say no to everything that they want to get done? It's a valid point. I'm not sure I'm totally convinced, but it's worth thinking about. So I don't. I don't have a problem with experts in federal agencies doing jobs that we all want them to do. Defense, disaster mitigation, federal science and technology research, things like the NIH, things that brought us the vaccine that's saving us from the pandemic right now, Fed policy, economic, broad economic policy. Great. Those are the things we need the federal government to do. I also don't have a problem with thinking about giving more flexibility to the states and taking some of that power out of their hands and, and distributing it a little bit more. Since you said that, I'll let you come on for another segment. You're listening to the New England Take on WKXL 1450 AM, 103.9 FM and nhtalkradio.com. I'm your host, AJ Kierstead. Get the back episodes of the show and the video is at thenewenglandtake.com. Please also check out we have my contact information on there if you want to advertise on the show. We're looking to get some regular sponsors on the program. So get your, average, get your company advertising with us. Get out on the airwaves. We'll get you out on our social media channels also. So please do reach out. You're listening to the New England Take and we'll be right back. Welcome back to the New England Take and WKXL, 1450 AM, 103.9 FM, and nhtalkradio.com. I'm your host, AJ Kierstead. Check out the back episodes of the show at thenewenglandtake.com. I'm joined today by Matt Robeson of the Beyond Politics podcast. Before we get any further, why don't you give another plug to your program? Beyond Politics is on every day on WKXL from 4 to 6 p.m. It is the place for politics, for thoughtful, balanced, not just the headlines, not just the spin from the parties, but thoughtful, considered analysis that goes a little bit deeper, looks under the hood of what's going on in politics. We have specific shows dedicated on Mondays. We have the Capitol Close-Up Show dedicated to what's going on in politics in New Hampshire. We have the Great Ideas Show, which is available as its own podcast, which is focused on new ideas. And they come from across the the ideological spectrum. And it's meant to just be thought provoking and get people out of their partisan tribes and lanes and maybe think about some hopeful ways forward for getting things working a little bit better in America. So I hope people check that out. Please do subscribe to these podcasts. You can check out everything we've got going on beyond politics podcast. Dot com. That's our website. And of course, anywhere you get your podcast, you can find Beyond Politics, Great Ideas, and Capital Close-Up. 
So we talked about this a bit in the first segment with your background being a staffer for uh, politicians in Capitol Hill. I mean, I feel like people really underestimate the role that staffers have in the day to day operations and what actually happens in that congressperson or senator's office. Can you speak a little bit about what the day to day would look like for the staffer that assists with policy and making things happen? Sure. Um, It's a over time. I've had a lot of, I've worked with a lot of young people who are interested in getting into this line of work, into this world, and I always encourage them to do it. I've worked in the private sector. I've worked for big Fortune 1000 companies. I've worked for small businesses and I've worked in government and campaigns. And I can tell you that in no realm, unless you're very fortunate and you're an entrepreneur, you own your own business and it's successful, which is rare, in no realm. Can people at a a young age, early in their career, have so much responsibility, have so much influence over what's happening on important questions for our country, for our society, for our economy? Uh, What does a day look like? You come in, you have meetings, you are speaking with advocates and experts, understanding where they're coming from and which way they want your boss to vote on important pieces of legislation. You're drafting remarks to be Uh, spoken on the floor of of Congress and the floor of the U.S. House of Representatives. You are reviewing policy and legislation and trying to decide what makes sense. You're informing members of Congress uh, about what's in legislation. You're coming up with ideas for them to bounce around um, for things that they may want to introduce, ways they might want to work and and form coalitions to to get things done. There's an awful lot that members of Congress get done um, that it doesn't make headlines. You know, when I was, uh, when I was 12 years old, my, my dad died. He had worked with a, a member of Congress, Charlie Rangel. He's kind of, he's kind of famous in congressional service circles. He represented Harlem for about 30 years. And he entered a speech into the congressional record about my dad. And after he died, he, they got me a framed copy of it. I'm sitting in my office. If you're watching on video, you can see me in my office right now. And I can Look right here. I've got the framed copy of it sitting right there. Well, when I became a congressional staffer, I realized something. Charlie Rangel never saw that speech. Charlie Rangel probably didn't know that that was happening. I mean, he actually did know my father. Some staffer did that, but it didn't make it any less meaningful to me. Congressional offices do work every day with thousands and thousands of constituents. They get them social security benefits that they deserve. They get veterans medals that they earned but never got. They help people connect to all kinds of resources in the federal government. And sometimes they get speeches entered into the congressional record and get it to 12 year old kids. So it's just an incredibly rich, rewarding experience that is meaningful and fun. And when violent insurrectionists aren't trying to invade your office to murder you, it's the best experience that I could advise for anyone. It's fine. It's I've, there's a lot of people that are in the seat of government that are age 25 to 35. My day job is at a law school and the amount of law clerks that are they're under 40. I mean, most of them are there for a while and then they go in to either be a judge himself or go practice. So on the judicial branch, there's tons of it. There's tons of it on, on, in Congress. There's a whole bunch of staffers on the executive branch, too. I mean, what's it what impact does it does the fact that they're much so much younger than the can't the person they're working for have on how things happen it's an incredible culture 
on Capitol Hill, one of the smartest people I know who is currently the the lead tax counsel. Boy, this is about to be wonky for a second. Okay, there's a okay. committee in Congress. It's, it's it's one of the most powerful committees. One of the most powerful perches in the House of Representatives is the Ways and Means Committee. They control taxes. The chairman of that committee is a guy named Richie Neal. He's from Springfield, Massachusetts. His lead tax counsel is a friend of mine from grad school. She always said that the thing that was amazing about Capitol Hill is that whoever in the room has the most knowledge runs the meeting. Doesn't matter what their age is. There are exceptions to that, but that's pretty much true. The Senate candidate in South Carolina against Lindsey Graham, uh, who's now the, Jamie Harrison, the, the chair of the DNC, is a friend of mine from Capitol Hill. When we worked together there, he was frequently the youngest guy in the room. Super smart, by the way. I mean, Yale Law School and all that. Like the people that you work with at, at UNH every day, right? Young, full of energy, incredibly intelligent. Didn't matter, right? He usually had the most senior position in the room. He usually ran the meeting. And so that is is less of a barrier. Age is less of a barrier. If you work for the right person or you have the right experience or you have the most knowledge, you can have as big an impact as anyone else. And your earlier point is right. Members of Congress rely heavily on their staffers. I'm not saying that any of us who worked on the Hill who were staffers were elected. We were not. The Constitution gave power to elected officials, and they're the people who make the decisions. They're the people who have the power. But any member of Congress worth their salt will tell you that they rely heavily, implicitly on their staff. They have very close relationships with their staff. And so it, it becomes a position where you can have a tremendous amount of influence. Yeah, it's I mean, the, the staffers are writing everything basically that's ending up out the door. It's huge. And it, it was it was really fascinating. So I've had the chance to go to D.C. a bunch of times, one of my favorite cities to go to. And it, it's funny seeing as soon as like six o'clock, seven o'clock, as soon as the offices all close on in all the office buildings, they all head to the bars. They part. They work their ass off all day really hard. They party their ass off for a couple hours and they're in bed. 10 o'clock, everything is 11 o'clock. Everything is is empty, essentially. It's fascinating seeing that culture. So that that network networking and the relationships are must be tremendously important, and especially for when they decide to move on and either enter uh, NGOs or uh, work in private sector, things like that. So it. It's, I mean, how much of your career after being a staffer has been impacted by the relationships you had? I never really got over the experience of being a staffer, honestly. I mean, I, I haven't been a staffer on Capitol Hill for, for 10 years, but it was the seminal career experience so far of my life. I actually love what I do right now. I actually really enjoy being a host on radio and podcasting. It's a ton of fun. I, I talk to experts from around the country in all kinds of fields. It's super duper interesting. But um, as you say, the collaboration, the working with the, the members of a team in your office, working with members of Congress, and working with people from across government, from think tanks, advocates, really incredible, smart, passionate people who know a heck of a lot, who care a heck of a lot. It's just, it's an incredibly vibrant, exciting, interesting experience to have. And 
if you really, if you get to be part of, of a really good team that, that accomplishes things, you know, when I was working for Mike Mishot from Maine, he was an interesting guy. He still is an interesting guy. He's from Millinocket, well, he's from East Millinocket, Maine. He worked for the Great Northern Paper Company, a paper mill that shut down two days after he was elected to Congress and went bankrupt. He'd worked there for 27 years, uh, graduated from high school, never went to college. One, one, of the, one of the few members of Congress with that kind of life experience, there should probably be more, right? Because that's more representative of more Americans. Really incredible guy. So we get into Congress and you know, we're setting up a new office. He hasn't even taken the oath of office. And I get a call from the, the lead staffer for the appropriations committee. That's the committee that hands out all the money. Back in those days, they had earmarks. Now they do again, which are little bits of funding that they specifically set aside for one congressional district. He said, hey, look, we've got $950,000 set aside for Mr. Michaud. You can, you can say what, what it needs to go to. You've got, you've got two days. You got to tell me what it's going to. So we worked together as a team. We made a whole bunch of phone calls and we were able to set up a healthcare program for all of these mill workers who were suddenly out of work and didn't have healthcare coverage. We covered a thousand mill workers with healthcare coverage during that gap where they were out of work. And it was something we were able to set up in two days. We did it as a team. There was a staffer in our office, a young staffer who was from that town. And he was able to get healthcare coverage for all his neighbors who were suddenly out of work. So you get to have these incredible hands-on experiences like that. There's, there's just nothing like it. All right. We got like four minutes left. So I want to dive into your decision to transfer to, to going into media. I mean, what, why, why on earth did you decide this? <laughs> yeah. That, there are mornings where I wake up asking myself the same question in a slightly different tone. Um, well, it's, it's a convoluted story. I, I was, as I mentioned, I was working as chief of staff for Paul Hodes, with whom I now co-host this show. He made the decision to run for the U.S. Senate in 2010. Turns out that was not a good year to be a Democrat. The worst thing you could be as a candidate that year was a Democrat in the House of Representatives. He was both. That did not go well. I think that we did not run the greatest campaign on earth, but we ran a pretty good campaign and he still lost by 22 points. By the way, I, I then managed a campaign the next cycle, which featured the most endangered Democrat in the House of Representatives and everyone wrote him off. All the prognosticators, all the newspapers, they said he was the number one goner and we won a come from behind victory. So that was a personal piece of, you know, like I, I, it, it validated for me that, you know, you can, you can run a pretty solid campaign. You can lose by 20 some odd points. You can run a pretty solid campaign. Everyone can say you're toast and you can win. But after that, I, you know, I actually, I spent two years working in the state Senate of New Hampshire, uh, which is an unusual career trajectory. Normally people work at the state level, and then the federal level, I did it in the other order. It made a lot of sense for me. It was really interesting. Um, and you can get a lot done on the state level. I, I got, to, that was during the time where New Hampshire was considering whether to expand Medicaid. And there were, I, I was able to work really hands-on on that project. And, you know, because we decided to do that, there were 50,000 people 
in New Hampshire who suddenly had affordable healthcare coverage. I'm very proud of that. So that was a that was a good period. I then went into the private sector for about five years um, because that's what my family needed. But we reached a point where we were in a position where I could start to get back to doing some things that I, I thought were really interesting. And um, the ability to write and be on radio and do podcasts got me back to focusing on some of these issues that we've been talking about that I find super important and super interesting and getting to talk to interesting people like you. How can I say no to that? Super interesting. (laughs) Well, I I really appreciate you coming on the show. uh, Beyond Politics is doing fantastic. I'm glad you guys are on our airwaves uh, four to six Monday through Friday here on WKXL. So um, give it one more plug here. send people off to your show and we will um and i'll be sure to link in the episode description so you guys can everyone in the audience can check it out i really appreciate that all right if you're listening i have one request to you which is wherever you get your podcasts please go subscribe to beyond politics and especially super duper if you have a choice do it on spotify uh it actually gives us a a little added boost so Check us out wherever you get your podcast, Beyond Politics. Also check out The Great Ideas Show. Uh, it's also available wherever you get your podcast. And finally, Capital Close-Up, which is a great show. Paul Hodes hosts a segment focused entirely on New Hampshire politics. We also have a roundtable discussion show with perspectives from left, center, and right, and legendary radio host in New Hampshire, Ken Kale, who uh, tries to keep us on track, although our last episode featured heavy discussion, real discussion about UFOs. I'm not making this up. There's a big disclosure coming in June from the federal government. This is this is real, folks. So um, check that out as well. It's all available at beyondpoliticspodcast.com, which is our website, or the WKXL NHTalkRadio.com website. Thanks for listening to the New England Take and WKXL. We'll talk to you next week.